Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm in the studio with our reporter, Amanda Aronchik. And Amanda, you brought a recording to play for me? Yeah, that's right. And before I play it for you, let me kind of set the scene. Picture a bunch of teenagers, people maybe in their early 20s, and they're sitting around in a circle. It's a group therapy session for high-functioning kids on the autism spectrum. Okay. And they're working on social skills. So they're talking about a book that one of them is writing. And in that book, there's a wedding scene. And this one kid, who we're calling Devin, has a question. How about... And, and, and actually, how about your friend... Okay. Uh, how, how, about, how about your friend gets... Actually, how about you drive your... Fr- actually, how about the... Actually, are there any bridesmaids at the wedding? What's up with all the laughing? Well, these guys have actually known each other for a really long time, so I think it's pretty good-natured laughing. They can all just tell that Devin is having a really hard time getting that question out. And he keeps just saying, how about, how about, how about? Yeah. He gets stuck. Yeah. The researcher who sent this to me, her name is Dr. Michelle Dunn, and for years she has known that this is a problem for her patients, right? She is a neuropsychologist, and she runs the Montefiore Einstein Center for Autism and Communication Disorders, which is in New York. And the patients she sees are high-functioning people, so they're very bright, but they might still have difficulties just talking. We had these kids that had these odd-sounding voices, um, or were not they were not projecting when they spoke, or they, they were just doing strange things with their voices um, that weren't working for them in the world. So Dr. Dunn suggested all sorts of things that she learned in her 30 years of working in this field. She would tell her patients, visualize the problem or plan what you're going to say in advance. I kept telling them, you need to stop and think, and then things will come out better. It's a relatively good idea, but still was not working. And, and what's the problem with saying stop and think? The problem was that they wouldn't stop. The problem was that a lot of the kids are impulsive enough that they wouldn't stop. The patients she sees are becoming adults, right? And Dr. Dunn worries about the transition. She knows they're going to lose a lot of the services that they get as kids. They won't have the therapy and the educational support. And they need to go out on their own. They need to go to college, get jobs, make friends. And that can be very hard when you don't speak in a way that people consider normal. Yeah, people can be a little bit cruel when you sound different. And I was told that these kind of speech patterns can be one of the hardest things to change. So Dr. Dunn really felt like she'd run out of options. Until this. This is Only Human from WNYC. I'm Mary Harris. Today on the show, the story of an unusual collaboration between an opera singer and an autism researcher. Dr. Dunn sings in a church choir, and one day she starts chatting with a fellow choir member, a guy named Larry Harris. This is him singing here. He's a big guy, 6'5", and turns out he was an NFL offensive lineman in the 1970s for the Houston Oilers. We are live from the Orange Bowl in Miami, Florida. The Houston Oilers against the Miami Dolphins. And the team's logo was an oil rig. Old riggy. They called it. <laughs> I love that. True story. During the offseason, Larry Harris would work on an actual oil rig. Okay, very different times in the NFL if he's actually having to work in the offseason. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess, probably less lucrative back then. So the way Larry tells it, he's working on one of these rigs. He's 300 feet above the Gulf of Mexico, and he has an epiphany. He'd rather be an opera singer. 
And so you fast forward many years, Larry quits the NFL, he becomes an opera singer, and he meets Dr. Dunn in choir at church. And this marks the start of Larry's third career. You know, I didn't get to explore my brain as a football player, really. And it was a great experience playing in front of, you know, millions of people, but I didn't get to, like, open up my brain the way I am now. He and Dr. Dunn started talking about these speech problems her patients were having, And he had all of these ideas based on his background as an athlete and as a singer. So they started brainstorming together. You know, after you've been in a field for a really long time, you know, it's, you know, you can burn out. But then he comes in here and he's so excited about everything he sees. And he's got comments and ideas about every single thing that we, you know, we see and do. It's exciting. It's fascinating to hear a whole nother perspective. They start making these short lessons that draw from Larry's training as an opera singer. And they think there is one young man who might really benefit from this. It's the same guy you heard at the top of the show. Remember, we're calling him Devin, which is not his real name, because his family wanted to protect his privacy. Dr. Dunn has known him for a really long time, since he was about six. And what was he like as a six-year-old? He was a maniac. Um, he, He was such an interesting kid. He was one of those guys who used to talk about his topics incessantly. He was very interested in marine biology. He would get really stuck. And this is really common for people on the spectrum, to become obsessed with one topic. And one of my goals with him was to teach him how to talk about other people's topics. So I remember one session, particularly memorable session with him, where we were talking about this idea of, okay, you've talked about marine biology now for a while. Now we're going to talk about another topic. It's going to be my topic. And um, he started screaming at me. But why? But why do I need to talk about other people's topics? I hate other people's topics. I only like my topic. This was what was coming out of his mouth, screaming so loud that his mother came bursting into the room to see if he was okay and if I was okay. Dr. Dunn says that another common behavior is being inflexible or rigid. Change can be very hard. And as a kid, Devin had a really hard time calming himself down. He couldn't make friends. He was in special ed classes. And as he got older, he was in regular classes, but there was always a teacher there dedicated just to him. For years, he worked on his social skills. You know, we teach things all the way from how to greet, you know, just how to say hi, how to take turns, all the way through to how do you judge how to enter a conversation when there's a conversation going on? What do you say when you enter the conversation? You know, the idea that you have to be thinking that there's a topic ongoing, so you have to enter on that topic. There are so many different things. Socialization is so complex, but in fact, it can be broken down into a lot of rules that can be taught in the social skills group. By the time Devin was 18, he could talk about other people's topics, not just marine biology. He's a bright guy. After high school, he gets recruited by a very good college to do a degree in bioengineering. But at first, it did not go well. Remember, this is what he sounded like. How about, and, and, and actually, how about your friend, uh, how, how, about, how about your friend gets, actually, how about you drive your, actually, how about the... <laughs> Actually, are there any bridesmaids at the wedding? And because he couldn't get his words out, no one took him seriously. He couldn't work in a group. He couldn't make friends. So Dr. Dunn and Larry offered to try out their new technique with him. They worked on it every week. Okay, so this is after five months. 
And I went to this nice Indian restaurant for my birthday. I also went to the Metropolitan Museum on my birthday. Okay, so... And I had a really good time there. Can you tell us something about what you saw? I saw... My favorite thing I saw was the European paintings. They told me about how... And they told me what the painting symbolized. I once believed that art was only designed to look nice, but but now I'm realizing that art has a meaning. It's, like, incredibly fascinating. Yeah, it seems Actually, are there any art fans in here? He's, like, a different person. I don't think he is a different person. Yeah. I think he's just communicating his ideas clearly. He's a more presentable person. Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. And I think the way he probably spoke before was very off-putting. Yeah. I was blown away, too. Dr. Dunn said in her career she had never seen something work so quickly. For you, is that a big deal? Yeah. (laughs) It's a very big deal. Putting a person in a place where they can communicate their ideas and their feelings effectively to another human being is incredible. I mean, it's, it's so... It's had, well, you'll hear what he says about the effect that it's had on him. Um, But for you, like as the person who's known him since he was a little guy. Yeah, it's very exciting because I have known all along the kinds of things that he's wanted, the relationships that he's wanted. I mean, he talks now about wanting a girlfriend, you know. He talks about wanting a real friend who really listens to him. Now she thought these things might be possible for him. So what were Devin and Larry doing in these hour-long sessions? Larry was pulling from his opera training. As an opera singer, you're not amplified, so you have to project your voice. To do that, you have to be able to control your breath and to start a sound cleanly. Singers learn to physically feel the opening and closing of their vocal cords. To show me what it sounds like to sing without fully closing your vocal cords, Larry sang one of Devin's favorites. It's from the musical Wicked. I've heard it said that people come into our lives for a reason. And here is Larry singing the same song while controlling his breath. I've heard it said when people come into our lives for a reason. That huh sound forces you to close your vocal cords. They call it breath pause. Well, I don't know if I believe it's true. But because I'm who I am today, because I knew you. Okay, that's enough, okay, right? that's enough. Okay. We should have written the words. Why were you laughing? Because <laughs> we should write the words down for him. <laughs> Are those not the words? Well, sort of. Close enough. Come on. Now, Mary... You want to try making the sound? It's like a karate chop. Okay. Like that? Like that. (laughs) Now do it again. Okay. This time hold your Adam's apple. All right. Here I go. And make the sound again. Do you feel it? Yeah. (laughs) No, you're supposed to let go. (laughs) Right? It like presses down. That's right. It presses your your vocal cords together. Okay. So how does this help though? Well, Dr. Dunn says they were teaching their patients a physical sensation, right? That huh sound. And that is a cue to slow down. So it's just so that they feel the closing of the cords. They feel right. that the breath is stopped. Then that's something that helps them to think at that point. Yeah. 
But if the breath continues to flow, this is what I found. Even with all the work telling them stop and think and all those kinds of things, if the breath continues to move out, they don't actually stop and think. The body is telling the brain to pause. If you feel your body stopping, it stops your brain because you can't talk while your breath is paused. So do you do this in conversation? Yes. Yes. Like you just do it silently. You do it silently, exactly. <gasps> now that I've said that to you, you'll hear it in the recordings with him. He's going, huh. Really? And he, as he makes that sound, instead of having like a thousand words kind of flow out of his mouth, he's paused. He has to kind of think, okay, what am I going to say next? What am I going to say next? And he's got a moment to do it in. And then what comes out next is more fluent. That's the idea. So you basically stop yourself from talking. Full stop. Full stop. You close your vocal cords. You stop the breath. And it forces you to stop and organize your thoughts. So has he been able to use it in his everyday life? Well, that we will get to after the break. Okay. This is Only Human. I'm Mary Harris. Last week, I spoke with Peter Grinspoon, a doctor who was addicted to painkillers for years. Eventually, he got caught and went to rehab. These days, he's careful about how he writes prescriptions, and he tells his kids that drugs are evil. One of our listeners, Jen O'Neill, wrote in to tell us she disagrees. Jen has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which affects the connective tissue between her bones and skin. She's been through a lot of surgeries, and she's in pain every single day. So she takes painkillers, a lot of them. Jen says the way we talk about drug addiction means people like her are stigmatized. She writes, I don't have any power in the situation between me and my doctor, especially with chronic pain when it's not obvious. They think you're faking it. Right now I'm going to school. I need to get home to walk my dog and make dinner. I don't want to be high. Opioids are not the best thing. They're just the best we have right now. Jen tells a lot more of her story at OnlyHuman.org. So check it out. And while you're there, tell us your story. Hey there, I'm Pat Walters, senior editor at Radiolab. And this summer, I'm hosting a new series on the concept of intelligence. It seems like Pandora's box. We're calling the series G, and it dives deep into the biological, historical, and ethical debate swirling around this controversial idea. I'm so nervous. What exactly is intelligence? Can we measure it? And should we? Listen to Radiolab from WNYC Studios wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mary Harris, and this is Only Human. I'm here with Amanda Ronchik, and we're talking about a teenager we're calling Devin. He was the first to try out this new technique inspired by opera training. It might actually help people on the autism spectrum speak more effectively. Yeah, and I think now is actually a good time to bring up a saying in this field, which is if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Yeah, so everyone is different. Everyone is very different. The spectrum is called a spectrum for a reason, and its range is very wide. So what works for Devin might not necessarily work for someone else. Sure. And you know how I said before that I wasn't able to speak with Devin directly? Yeah, because his family wanted to protect his identity. Mm-hmm. Dr. Dunn said she was willing to interview him on my behalf. So now I'm going to play you her interview. It was recorded when Devin was 19, about a year after he started this technique. 
What happens when you try to speak? Stuttering, saying um and like too much. Why do you think it's important to have better fluency? So people take me seriously. What have you been doing to work on fluency with Larry? I've been learning to take calming breath and breath pause. I've been learning to think of what I think about what I'm gonna say and pause more often when I'm speaking. I feel like I've really mastered this now. <laughs> right at the moment it sounds great. When your fluency is improved, how does that change your life? It makes people care about me more. It makes people value what I have to say more. Has anything changed in your relationships? They've gotten better. How? Just I'm able to connect to people better. When you had a voice with a more nasal sound, how do you think that made people feel? How did that come across to other people? It came across as being not very attractive. It came across as being almost annoying. I think sometimes it just would startle me. Sometimes you would start speaking in that nasal voice and I would jump. <laughs> so how do you think you come across to other people now with this more oral sound? I come across to people more normally. More normally, okay. Yes. How is my timbre sounding now? You sound beautiful now. You know, it's funny, I can hear him in that tape making those little <gasps> sounds. Yeah, that's right. It still doesn't come to him totally fluently. It's still kind of hard. I just think that my life is kind of strange with relation to other people's lives, it seems. Really? My life is all about acquiring skills, it seems now. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what it seems, that my life is all about acquiring skills, whereas, whereas other people's life seems to be about do, actually doing something. You know, he's so much easier to listen to and understand now. But what are the downsides here? I mean, he's essentially hiding the fact that he has autism. Yeah, I know. I, I talked to Dr. Dunn about this at length. She said that society demands a certain amount of adapting. If you are in the supermarket and you yell, people will move away. And if you can't talk about anybody else's topics but your own, it's hard to make friends. A lot of what we're doing is helping them to pass. They try to go get jobs after they get out of college and they can't speak in a, a, a normalized kind of way. They speak in a very disfluent way or their voice sounds really unusual and people shut them down right away. They don't even look at what their abilities are. Lots of times if you say, well, I'm autistic and that's just it, that doesn't mean that people are going to accept you. Dr. Dunn says for her patients with autism, typical social behaviors don't come naturally. But with some work, they can try on new behaviors. Put them on, check them out, see how they work. I wondered, though, did she think that could be exhausting? I think that that's the case sometimes. I think some of these guys also become so aware of the rules that they're monitoring themselves a lot and maybe monitoring themselves too much after a while um, that that's exhausting for them. 
But that's part of what we deal with, too, helping them to understand when their skills have reached a certain level where they can let go and relax and just be social um, and understand that there are all kinds of social mistakes that every one of us makes every day um, and that they're going to make them, too, and that's okay. You know, people will um, tolerate that. And to think like, oh, if only we could just have a world that accepted people who are different more easily. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be so nice. (laughs) A few weeks ago, I asked Dr. Dunn to interview Devin again to see how he was doing. It's been two years since he first started learning the technique, and you'll hardly hear that breath pause. I sent her a list of specific questions, and I knew some of them would be hard, but Dr. Dunn faithfully asked each one. All right, so um, how old are you now? 20. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And that was an easy one. (laughs) How's school going? I really like all my classes so far. Um, Do you think that people can tell you're on the autistic spectrum? Yes. How do you think they tell that? Just my voice sounds a little strange sometimes. My behavior is a little strange sometimes. Do you um, do you envy people? Are you jealous of people who don't have to work so hard at speaking well? Yes, you are. Yes, I am. A lot of times, it's just it just seems like it comes naturally to most people. Mm-hmm. I feel like I often do feel envious of people not on, on the autism spectrum. It's kind of heartbreaking to listen to. I feel like that's what kind of comes through to me that he knew exactly what he was missing. He just didn't know how to get there. I think he just gets to choose now, right? Yeah. He can present in a way where people don't necessarily know, and he can choose who he tells and when he tells them. He's able to communicate in a way that he can get to the second and third and fourth conversation, as opposed to having everything shut down at the first. I did this club, and I'm meeting people there. What club? Build on. What do you do there? And I help people with. I help people with education. I help. And, and help Im- improve schools in, like, poor areas by fundraising and, and, commu- and community service. That's awesome. It's also in a genetics club. And, and there's going to be a Valentine's Day-themed... <laughs> Wait, a Valentine's Day-themed themed what? And, and genetics of attraction. <laughs> You're kidding. The genetics of attraction for Valentine's Day. Yes. It sounds like a bunch of scientists at this Valentine's party. Because that's what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. That's great. That's what it is. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you a question. You're making a lot of friends at school. Is yes. That, that's what's happening? Yeah, that's what's happening. That's pretty cool. How does that feel? Very nice. I like think about other people like a lot now. And what Dr. Dunn said about this is what you can't see is that he had a huge smile on his face when he said the last thing. I feel like I can hear the smile. I know. You can't. <laughs> I know. Dr. Michelle Dunn and Larry Harris have used this technique successfully with 10 patients now. They're finishing up a teaching guide based on their work. It's called The Music of Speech. If you or someone you know is on the autism spectrum, what do you think about this technique? Tell us your story. Write to us at onlyhuman at wnyc.org or leave a comment on our Facebook page. We're at Only Human Podcast.
Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. Thanks this week to Patricia Willens. Our team includes Paige Cowett, Amanda Aronchik, Elaine Chen, Julia Longoria, Kenny Malone, Molly Messick, Fred Mogul, and Ankita Rao. Our technical director is Michael Raphael. Our executive producer is Lital Mulad. Special thanks to Wynne Periasami, who interned with us last year and continued to care about this story long after. One last thing, Molly Messick doesn't want me to thank her this week, but I'm going to do it anyway. She helped us launch this show, and this is one of the last episodes she's had her hands on. We can't thank her enough for her work here. Knock em dead at Gimlet. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you next week. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Torina Endowment Fund, the Hearst Foundations, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation.